I had the privilege this week of attending the first NBA game played in the Philippines, courtesy of a gift. And there is nothing like going to a live sports event. You can watch it on TV, but there is energy and there's excitement as you go to a live sporting event. Partly, I love going to a live sporting event is because there are things that happen in the stadium or the arena that they don't show on TV. And I love watching people make fools of themselves supporting the team that they love. And watching with excitement the extent of how they will show their love and loyalty. In the professional level to the collegiate to the high school level, people do, will do a wide variety of things to show their school pride and their love for their team. You know, it's interesting that yesterday was also the final in the UAAP. People live and die by one second or two seconds. It's interesting that this morning, that the people wearing green are very happy. But you know, what could have been, and what could have been is that a lot of yellow people would be very happy this morning also. But there's always next year. But as you watch and you notice and you look, uh, it's just interesting the depth and the height that people will go to support their team. As I've been thinking about that this week, I've grouped uh, the way we support our school, our sports team, whether in the professional or the collegiate or the high school level, into kind of five general areas of support. Uh, the first is you show support by learning the traditions of the school or of the team, or even of the company. You learn the fight song. You learn the chants. You learn the actions associated with that team. You learn the protocol to show your pride. A second general grouping is that you show team spirit. You wear the paraphernalia. You wear the shirts. You get the license plate. You put a sticker in your car. You use personalized stationery with your team's name on it. You yell as loudly as possible at the TV screen, although they can't even hear you. But you participate. The third area is one that I love, and it's just the area of creativity. You get creative. Some younger ones grab a group of friends and take off their shirts and then paint letters across their body spelling the name of the school. I wish they kept their shirts on, but anyways... Some of them dress up like their mascots. Some of them name their first child after a famous player on their favorite team or name their child after the team itself. And yes, it does happen. The fourth grouping of ways of support is that you give money. You give it to the boosters. You, you buy tickets. You buy season tickets. You buy the jerseys. Uh, you purchase the concessions. But the fifth group, or the biggest way you show your true loyalty, is you stick with your team through the thick or thin. You, you stick with them, even though they're not doing so well. The way you support a sports team is the way you support a company, an organization, a foundation, even your own family. The things that you are willing to do shows your loyalty to that organization or that group. In the very same way, those very elements of support showing 
are the very elements we show to God in worship. In supporting this team, we call the church. But if you compare the average sports fan to a believer, we as believers are sorely lacking in our love for God, in our enthusiasm for His church. And that's why our worship is so pitiful sometimes. As we conclude our series this morning, The Life of David, in a series entitled David, A Man After God's Own Heart, we look at the twelfth quality of a heart for God. And this morning we look at the quality of a heart of worship. What does a heart of worship look like? Why are we so often ineffective in worship? What is the type of worship that God desires? Those are about some of the questions we want to ask and have answered this morning as we look in God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 as we take a look at verses 10 to verse 20. As you're turning in your Bibles with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, let me remind you that last week we talked about how God allowed David to make preparations for the building of the temple, though he himself would not build the temple. And David gathered all the building materials and he assembled the labor force with the skilled workers to allow his son Solomon to build God's temple. In doing so, God challenged David and in turn David challenged the people to give. And the people responded with great generosity. As we come to the last chapter in First Chronicles... And how the chronicler has put together the life of David, it seems as if for the chronicler, the author of this book, that this is the climax of David's reign. This is the pinnacle of his life. The preparation has been completed for the building of the temple. David is now to proclaim his son Solomon as king over all Israel. David has reached the height of his kingship. And what does David do? David's response is to gather the people in worship. This is the natural response of one who has cultivated in his entire life a heart of worship. And we've seen this even though he was a shepherd boy tending the sheep. He had already been cultivating this heart of worship. From this characteristic of his heart for God, we see that all the qualities and all the characteristics of his heart spring forth from this heart of worship. Let's study his prayer this morning to gather four principles for how we can cultivate a heart of worship. We begin in verse 10 and verse 11 of First Chronicles chapter 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. I want you to notice the words that David uses in these two verses. Power, greatness, glory, victory, majesty, exalted. These amazing, powerful words describe the amazing, awesome attributes of Almighty God. David was recounting to the people, and perhaps to himself, the attributes of God. 
David acknowledges that everything belongs to him. And if you were to sum up these two verses with one word, may I suggest the word greatness. God's greatness is what is spoken of in these two verses. David continues in verse 12. Look with me. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. David recognized in verse 12 that God is sovereign and that he chooses by his grace and his mercy to extend his blessings to his people and make them great. If I could summarize this verse with one word, I would use the word goodness. God's goodness seen in his grace and mercy given to his people. So in view of God's greatness and in view of God's goodness, what is David's response? Look at verse 13. Now, therefore, wonderful words that tell us the the result of verse 10 to verse 12. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Worship is the response to who God is and what God has done. David says, we praise you. We worship you, O God. That is my natural response in light of your goodness and in your greatness. In response to what you have done and what you are. It's as simple as that. You don't have to go out and buy a worship book or have a long definition for worship. Worship is a response. And herein lies our first principle, number one, if you're taking notes. A heart of worship recognizes and responds to who God is and what God has done. A heart of worship recognizes and responds to who God is and what God has done. Who God is, verse 10 and verse 11. What God has done, verse 12. Response, verse 13. It's about as simple as that. That's a Bible study. If only you slowed down and read these words carefully. You draw out some amazing principles. A heart of worship recognizes and responds to who God is and what He has done. Would you put in parentheses next to the phrase, who God is, the word greatness. And then would you put in parentheses next to what God has done, the word goodness. The first principle can also be stated, a heart of worship recognizes and responds to God's goodness and God's greatness. It's simple as that. In verse 14 and verse 15, David says this, But who am I and who are my people? that we should be able to offer so willingly as this. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. David said, I acknowledge that these things that we're giving back to God is that which God has given us. David says, if I didn't recognize God's goodness and God's greatness, then I would not worship. But I worship because I do. 
David says, I, I, I may even take worship for granted. Or simply be going through the motions if I don't remember His goodness and His greatness, who He is and what He has done. My friends, worship stems out of what you believe about God and about what He has done for you. If you don't believe Him to be one who is worthy to be worshipped, then you will not worship. I'm glad that you're here this morning. But your coming this morning does not tell me you desire to worship You begin to worship when you believe that the Lord your God is worthy to receive worship. So let me ask you a question. Is the God that you believe in worthy to be worshipped? Is He worthy? Is He he worth all the trouble? You know, I'll be honest. I I sometimes get very frustrated as a pastor, and I'm only human. I've talked oftentimes about the same subject matter over and over and over again, but it seems like it simply falls on deaf ears, and I get frustrated. Talk about coming on time, talk about dressing appropriately, talk about the priority of the worship of God. But then I learned this truth. It's not my job to tell you how to worship. It isn't. It's not my job to give you all the rules and the house rules that relate to worship. My job as a pastor is to tell you who God is through His Word. It's to tell you what God has done for you through His Word. And it is your responsibility to respond to who God is and what God has done. Because how you respond is between you and Him. And it's been a freeing experience to understand this truth. We worship other things because we think it is of value. We cheer on our teams. We go to lengths to arrive early at the arena because it is something of value. We give priority to our family and the social responsibilities because it is something of worth in our mind. But when it comes to God and the worship of Him... It's pretty low on the list. We know we have to do it, but it isn't worth it to us. It isn't worth all the trouble. And so again, I ask you the same question. How good is your God and how great is He to you? Because what you truly think about Him is evidenced in how you worship Him. It comes out. Now, I need you to remember that worship comes in many forms. Worship is not simply sitting here on a Sunday morning for an hour or an hour and a half. Worship manifests itself in many different ways. It is evident in our service to Him. That is also worship. Worship comes in our commitment to His work, in our commitment to what we volunteer to do. Worship comes in our sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. My friends, how you live your life every day, from Monday through Saturday, how you live it is worship. And so if you live it carelessly and with little regard to God, then you do not worship Him.
I was challenged about two weeks ago by a Singaporean man I met. This man is very successful in what he has done. He was the regional head, the Southeast Asia region head of a multinational company. He speaks seven languages. But he gave all of that up to live in the slums of Manila with his wife and family. This is his act of worship. He could have sent his kids to expat schools, but he didn't. He sent his children to local Filipino schools. But I don't want you to feel sorry for this man. Because if you meet this man, he is filled with joy. He told me, I go to the places where no one else wants to go. And so he goes south to Mindanao in the most dangerous of areas to help the less fortunate. He just was in Pakistan this week. He goes to Bangladesh. He goes to countries that no one wants to go to for the sake of the gospel. And you will not find a more joyful, passionate man. And I see in how he has lived his life that his life is about worship. There is worship in his heart. Yes, he may not be able to go to come to service on a Sunday morning in a traditional worship gathering. But the every day in which he lives his life is already worship as unto God. How are you worshiping God in the way that you live in response to who he is and what he's done for you? Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and the pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. In verse 16, David acknowledges that all that they have given to the Lord is really God's. And so what they were doing was right and giving back to God what is his. But I love verse 17. Because here David notes in verse 17 something very important. David correctly notes and observes that all that has been given were given with a pure heart. With the uprightness of heart. Because David knows that God looks at the heart. And he takes pleasure in what is given when it is given with integrity. You see, there must be integrity in worship. You cannot worship God, and God will not accept your worship if you do not have integrity of character. Let me give you the principle first, and then explain it to you. Here's number two, the second principle. A heart of worship requires integrity of character. A heart of worship requires integrity of character. One cannot worship God if there is no integrity of character. That means you cannot live in sin and tell the Lord, Lord, I worship you, I love you. You cannot be stealing and doing what is wrong and they say, Lord, I glorify your name. 
You cannot be living a lie and then singing songs of praise. Yes, you can actually do those things. But the point is, it doesn't mean anything. It's worthless. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of God's time. That's why we say sin is a hindrance to our worship and fellowship with God. A holy God can have nothing to do with sin. So before we can even approach God in worship, we must be cleansed. You see, the enjoyment of worship does not come necessarily from the emotion of the heart as you are moved by song or in a large congregation. The enjoyment of worship comes when you are found to have holiness with a heart of integrity. In fact, that's what Psalm 78, verse 72 to 73 tells us. In Psalm 78, the psalmist is speaking of David and his life. And he tells us in conclusion about David's life, he says this, David shepherded the people according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. David shepherded the people according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. You see, David was a very able administrator. He was a leader. He was a visionary. He had skillfulness of hand. He was capable. But ability and capability does not mean you have integrity of character. There's a balance which fits hand and glove capability and integrity. David was able to do both. You see, business leaders and businessmen can be very capable, but if they have to use methods and means by which God is not pleased with to achieve what they have, then they're really not that capable and their ability is diminished. Students can be smart and they can be academically gifted but if they cheat to achieve it, then that glory is diminished. It often boggles the mind, as I've taught 10 years worth of star section students, honor section students, that some still cheat. Maybe they believe that everyone's doing it. But the point is, can you walk across that graduation stage and receive the honor that you have so-called earned knowing what you have done. Likewise, to really worship God appropriately. We not only come to Him in worship, but we have to come to Him with a heart of integrity. Integrity of character. You cannot sin and sing praises to God. You cannot live a sinful life and glorify His name. It's hard to be a pastor. It's hard because if I have a disagreement with my wife, and if that disagreement goes past Saturday afternoon, I always lose, the agreement. I always lose that disagreement. Cindy knows that if I'm preaching, I cannot preach with anger or bitterness or sin in my heart, or else the Holy Spirit will not work effectively. So if our disagreement has reached Saturday afternoon because we have a Saturday evening service, 
She knows that I will have to come and ask her for forgiveness. And we will make up, even though I know that she was wrong. How can I stand before you and preach God's word and worship if my heart is darkened by sin? Good thing I have a wonderful wife who doesn't often abuse that truth. But that's the very idea of integrity. The heart must be in the same condition with what comes out of our lips and what is in our mind. Integrity of character goes hand in hand with the heart of worship. No wonder so many people cannot find joy in worship because they do not have integrity of character as they come. If we worship with a sinful heart, we're simply going through the motions because God does not accept our worship because the Bible tells us very clearly God looks at the uprightness of our hearts. You test the heart and you take pleasure in uprightness. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thought of the hearts of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. David's prayer in verse 18 and 19 centers on the idea of loyalty. David prayed that his son Solomon and the people who were gathered would always be loyal to God. There was to be no other idols. There was supposed to be no other gods before the Almighty God. You can't worship the Almighty God and have other gods or idols. And herein lies our third principle, number three. A heart of worship expects unwavering loyalty to God. A heart of worship expects unwavering loyalty to God. I have to put the word unwavering before loyalty. Because in this day and age, our loyalty changes with the wind. A heart of worship comes when we are steadfast in our desire to please God. A heart of worship comes when we are steadfast in looking to God alone as the one worthy to be worshipped. Because whenever our loyalties waver, then we become unfaithful to God, and then we cannot worship. When I think about loyalty, I think about loyalty between husbands and wives. How can I say I love you to my wife if I am unfaithful and sleeping with another woman? The words I love you would be hollow. They would be empty. Likewise, how can I say, Lord, I love you. I sing your praises. When I've adulterated myself to the things of the world. Now you may say, oh, pastor, hang on there. Don't be so dramatic. I do worship God and there are times that, you know what, I do stray. I understand that. We're all sinful people. What I'm sharing to you is this. You cannot live with your feet on both sides You cannot serve God and man. 
Worship comes when you are unwaveringly loyal to God. Nothing else. Oh, but we're so good at putting up counterfeit gods. We have taken God and we've whittled away the difficult parts of a holy God, of a God who demands justice and righteousness, and we've made God into something that is palatable to us. We've, we've made God into something that we can grasp, and we've made God into someone we can manipulate. Oh, our God will understand. Our God won't mind. If I come to church once a month, it's not a big deal. God understands. He's a forgiving God. They're all true. But we don't look at truth in its totality. We pick and choose the truth we like about God. And you are building a counterfeit God in which you are worshiping. And that God looks very much like God. But He's a counterfeit. And it's just not the same He may be a placeholder, but he's just not the same. I was reminded of this truth just this past Friday. Uh, This Friday evening, our life group, my life group, one of my life groups, uh, went out uh, to dinner. Uh, It's a group of about uh, eight couples that I disciple, and uh, uh, we had a good time fellowshipping. Uh, but one of the couples uh, had gone to the U.S., and we were not complete that evening. After we ate, uh, we wanted to take a picture. But, you know, when you're not complete, uh, you feel bad. And we kind of joked around, hey, we can, you know, Photoshop their picture in or whatever else. But just then, in that restaurant, there was a guy who looked very much like the guy who was in the U.S. And so we kind of joked around, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we walked over there and asked him to be a part of our picture, kind of as a stand-in? I mean, this guy really looked the part. He had the hair, he had the skin color, he had the height, everything. And so we joked about it, but uh, no one would do it. And um, it is kind of creepy if you think about it. You know, you go over there, hey, you look like one of my friends. Could you come and take a picture with me? That doesn't sound very correct. So we kind of ribbed each other and kidded with each other and dared each other. And surprisingly, the one person that volunteered to go and talk to that man was my wife. I was surprised. So she walks over to that table and we all got our hands embarrassed and ashamed. And she walks over to that table and he said, basically, sir, you know, we're a Bible study group and one of, the, one of our guys are in the U.S. and you look just like him. Uh, would you come and take a picture with us? And you know what? He said, yes. And he came over. He was such a good sport. And uh, maybe I'll post the picture of it uh, on Facebook this afternoon. But... Uh, he stood in the middle and he had a big smile and he was just part of the group. And we took the picture and we sent that picture to our friend in the U.S., our church member, and we said, hey, you better hurry up or we're going to replace you. And uh, that was so funny. And I kept looking at the picture and laughing all night. There he was smiling in the middle. It wasn't him, but it looked like him. And uh, what a great 
object lesson. That's what we do with God. The semblance of loyalty to someone who kind of looks like God. They call him God. But we have, in actuality, made him a counterfeit God. Because we picked and chosen the parts of him we like and we disregarded the parts we don't. That is not loyalty. He may look the part, he may make us feel good because he's a placeholder. But that is not worship. Worship speaks most clearly in the priorities in which we place him. Whatever takes priority over our worship of God is an idol. Whatever manipulation, whatever justification for why we do not worship means he is not number one. Whatever career choice, whatever social obligation, whatever grocery shopping, whatever excuse you have and why you cannot put God first means that that thing is an idol and is a God to you. And if there's a God or an idol that you worship, then you cannot really truly worship the risen Savior. It is when we are unwavering in our loyalty to God that it comes out in the priorities of how we live our life. It's as simple as that. Look at verse 20 with me. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the king, before the Lord and the king. I want you to see something here in verse 20. David simply asked the congregation to bless God, to worship Him. The people responded by blessing God. But they were so stirred in their hearts. They were so convicted. They were so moved. Look what they did. They bowed their heads in reverence and prostrated themselves in humility. This was a natural response of worship bowing their heads in reverence and prostrating themselves in humility. And herein lies our fourth and final principle. Number four. A heart of worship expresses itself in physical action. A heart of worship expresses itself in physical action. Now some of you may be a bit worried here at the implications Does that mean I've got to jump up and down and yell amen? That's not really the culture of our church. Do I need to raise my hands? It makes me uncomfortable. What I'm simply stating here in this principle is that you are to participate. There is a physical response. There is an action on your part. It may mean opening your mouth when we sing. Psalm 100 tells us, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Now I know some of you are embarrassed because you can't sing. And if you believe you can't sing, you probably can't sing. And I know there are many here that can't sing because I've stood in front of you and I've heard you sing. But you know, I'd rather be known as a church filled with people who can't sing but do sing than a church that the people don't sing. 
I really mean that. I don't care if you're out of tune. But I hope the expression of your worship comes out with conviction and with strength. I hope that when we read Scripture together, we read, not simply going through the motions, but savoring the very words of God we read together. It's a response, a call to worship that could also entail participating by bringing your Bibles turning to it when we give you the reference, following along as I read from the pulpit. A heart of worship expresses itself in physical action. Listening attentively is one. Some of you may be embarrassed because in the culture that we live in, we're more reserved But it's not about embarrassment. It's not about culture. It's about your heart's response to who God is and what God has done. What is your physical response to the amazing God that you worship this morning? Why do you not participate Action means participating, being prepared to come to worship. There is no need to fear embarrassment. Because if our God is not embarrassed of you, then you shouldn't care what other people think. We worship not so that others can be impressed, we do not worship so that we can be seen. We worship because we have an audience of one. And he's watching how we worship him. You know, this is hard for me, I know, because I'm a very reserved person in the sense that I'm not that emotional. I can get passionate about things, but I'm just really not that emotional. I don't cry often, although I'm, I'm sure you've seen me tear up once or twice Uh, delivering a message as the Spirit has convicted. But uh, it's rare, and I'm not one who cries much. I married a woman who does. Uh, I mean, this is a woman who will cry watching Finding Nemo. It's a cartoon. And then I will laugh at her, and then she'll get mad at me. Uh, You know, it's... Maybe it's my wiring. I don't know. Uh, in fact, I love doing weddings. And uh, um, as I have one of the best vantage points of any person at a wedding ceremony, when those doors fly open and the bride comes in, I have an internal bet in my mind. I'm betting, will that bride cry? Is she going to bawl? But since it's also the 21st century, I'm also thinking, is the groom going to cry? You know, this is something I never really understood. This is the most joyful time of a person's life. They should be happy and giddy with excitement. And why are they crying? It makes it look like they're being forced to marry this guy. Maybe in some cases they were. I don't know. But I never understood that. I never understood the depth of emotion that came out in a wedding. 
I didn't cry in my wedding. But then I began to understand this a bit last year. Last year, if you know, in May, uh, I went back to the U.S. because my brother, younger brother, was getting married. And before um, he got married, and before I flew, he called me up and he said, Steve, I'd like for you to be a part of the wedding. I said, I'd be very honored. He said, I'll give you a choice. You can either officiate the wedding or you can be my best man. You can't do both. You've got to pick one. You can either officiate my wedding or you can be the best man. I thought, what should I do? I thought, well, if you officiate a wedding, you have to actually work and do something and prepare. If you're the best man, you just stand there. And being the lazy person that I am, I said, well, Sam, I'd be honored to stand as your best man. And so I was his best man. But the best man does have one responsibility. Uh, he must give the best man speech at the reception. And at the reception, I gave the best man speech, and I told those who were assembled there at the wedding reception the real reason why I chose to be his best man and not to officiate his wedding. You've got to understand, I told them, and I'm telling you now, that my brother is a really good brother. All my life, he has served me. Uh, he, he's been my slave. <laughs> I don't know how that looks to you, but when a brother washes your clothes until you're 26, that's a pretty good brother. When I visit him in Texas, I just put my laundry in the basket and he washes it for me. That's a good brother. You know, he's one of those brothers. I don't know if you were one of them or you had a kid brother or a sister like this, or you can see it in your own kids where I'm playing the video game as the older brother and he's sitting right next to me, clapping his hands, cheering me on. I mean, other siblings would be fighting over the controller, not him. This is the brother, if I'm playing video games and I get hungry, he'll go out and get me a snack. This is the brother who... Can I say even saved my marriage? I tried to teach my wife how to drive. I think we almost got a divorce. Husbands never teach your wives how to drive. It will ruin your marriage. He felt the tension. And he offered to teach Cindy how to drive, which he did. He's a good brother. And so I mentioned all of these and a little bit more at the reception. And I told them, you know, I was given a choice to be the efficient or to be the best man. But I chose to be the best man. And here's the reason. Because my brother has served me all of his life. And I chose to be the best man. Because for one day in his life, I get to serve him. And I don't know what happened to me. When I said those words, I just began to cry and cry and cry. Maybe I was crying partially because I was losing him to another woman. <laughs> but the reality was there was a depth of emotion that could not be explained. And the depth of love that just came out because of the truth of what that moment was. I hope I've tried to describe 
a small part of the depth of emotion you must have or you need to have in your worship of God because of who He is and what He has done. How many of you have ever cried in disbelief or be so overwhelmed in silence as you recognize what your God has done for you and just how amazing He is. How many of you have just stopped in your tracks as you're thinking about Him and just, just stood in silence in awe of, of how magnificent your God is? And then, in deep appreciation, thinking about how He would care so much for you. My friends, when you can experience that physical expression of a depth of worship, then you will begin to understand the joy of worship. And you will crave it, and you will want it, and you will enjoy it. It is because, oftentimes in our life, hindered by sin or a lack of appreciation of God, that we do not worship. We take Him for granted. We simply go through the motions. If you can cultivate a heart of worship, express itself through physical action, you will understand the depth of worship and the joy it brings. Worship comes in many forms, as I've mentioned. I don't want you to think for a moment that worship is a Sunday morning service. But as I've given you five categories at the beginning of this sermon of how many of us express loyalty in worship at the altar of sports, our commitment to a team or even to a company or to an organization or to a foundation? Can I use those same categories to give you some examples how you can worship? Learn the traditions of the church, meaning learn the songs. Learn the biblical passages. Learn where the books of the Bible are. If you don't understand what was read or, or preached, go back in depth and look at it. If you have time to learn silly fight songs, then you have time to learn about the great songs of the faith. Show some team spirit. Doesn't mean you have to wear the t-shirts we've given you on a Sunday morning. But it means participate. Sing as loudly as you can in support of your church brothers and sisters, and especially for the song leader up here. It, it gets lonely up here singing by yourself. Participate. Together, that requires that you come early so that you can participate. Get creative, but please do not paint GCCP on your bodies and then come and say, hey, look, pastor, I'm creative. I tell you to put your shirt back on. But there are so many ways through the talents that God has given you, through the resources he's given you, through your ability by which you can get creative to worship God in the area of arts, 
in the area of sports, in the area of music, even your computer skills can show forth creative ways to worship God. Give. Not necessarily give money. Give of your time and of your resources. Give back to God what is His. That's why I love when our church went from the passing the plate to the Dropbox system. Because giving is an act of worship. It's between you and God. No one else. No one else. But most importantly, show loyalty. Make the worship of God a priority in your life. No excuses. He gets first billing in your life. If you make an excuse, forget it. You're not worshiping. I like to say we've got four services. There are no excuses. We upload our sermons, no excuses. But you show your worship of God by where you rank worship in your weekly rhythm. Where is it? In corporate worship and private worship. Where does it rank? If it doesn't have priority, then it is not worship. It is an obligation. And people who are obliged to do something never find joy in it. There are many other ways by which you can worship. But I just give you a few concrete ideas. And so we end our study in the life of David. There are many aspects of his life I wish we were able to cover, but we've just run out of time and we'll be moving to a new series. But I encourage you to study more about, about his life and the Psalms that he has written. But I want to close this series by looking at just one last verse. Verse 28 of First Chronicles 29. Look how the chronicler speaks of his life. Verse 28. So David died in a good old age, full of days and riches and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. I could preach an entire sermon on this one verse. But there it is right there. Died at a good old age. It means he died with a full life. He was content. We don't have an actual number, although we know when he died. But it's not about the number. It's how you live your life before you die. And David lived to a good old age, a full life, a content life. He lived a purpose life. Full of days, meaning no regret. His life had a purpose, a mission. He was satisfied when he died. He died in riches and honor. I think that speaks for itself. Physical riches he had, but I zone in on the honor part. He is honored. An honored man, a beloved man, beloved by God and beloved by people. Leading with integrity of heart and with the skillfulness of hand. And then it is noticed, noted he died as Solomon, his son, reigned in his place, left a spiritual legacy. Here's a man who's lived out a good life. Not a perfect man. Don't you ever want to think, I don't want you ever to think that David is a perfect man. He was not, and we know that. 
But as we end our study in the life of David, here is a man who had cultivated a heart for God throughout his entire life. And so he became the only one in the Bible who it is commended as a man after God's own heart. What a great commendation. But that commendation is not only for David. It can be said of you and me. The highest of commendation when you leave this life and when you meet our Lord is that he can say of you, you have been a man or a woman after my own heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that the pinnacle of David's life is seen in how he has worshipped you and how he has cultivated a heart of worship not only in a service but in the every day he lives his life. I pray that each person here would cultivate that heart of worship because you are worthy. You are worthy of our worship because you are good and you are great. You are worthy of our worship because of who you are and what you have done. I pray that you would raise up our church to be a church where its people are people who worship the one true God in spirit and in truth. It's hard to do, Lord, I know. But Lord, help us to enjoy, to savor, to crave, to want the depth of satisfaction it is when we can come before a holy God and just enjoy sweet communion with Him. Bless your people this morning. May the Word of God pierce their hearts, change them, change me in the areas of my life and our life that need changing. Transform us and cultivate in us a heart for God so that it can be said of each person here, this was a man or woman after God's own heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.